don't mind grit. I like grit. I like it gritty. People don't understand that gritty doesn't mean it's not safe. Gritty doesn't mean it's dirty. It just means that it it has culture. It has some kind of feel to it, you know, that that's indicative of New York. Welcome to the Profitable Table, fed by Wolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I am your host, Stephen Toberoff, and today I have as a guest a real legend of the uh, New York City restaurant scene, somebody who was the owner and chef of the legendary restaurant Campania, as well as... Fred's at Barney's, but where I came to know my guest was from a phenomenal restaurant in the Meatpacking District, and and we'll get into that, but let me just introduce my guest, Mark Straussman. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I just have to begin that it's it's so great, and it brings back so many fond memories, because when we were located on Gansevoort Street, you had a restaurant called Chingale right across the street from us. And it was just such a phenomenal spot on every level, the food, the vibe. It was great. A very a very different scene back then, but a lot of great memories. Yeah. I mean, you know, I actually lived around the corner on Horatio Street at the time. And, you know, it's funny. Every time I go into that neighborhood, I just I'm walking around stupefied as to the fact that the restaurant that I once owned there is now an Hermes boutique. I know it's incredible. I I also lived on Horatio Street in two different locations. And I remember when I moved back to New York from Chicago in 93, I was even thinking, oh, this is going to be, you know, cool. And then, as you said, it's evolved and changed in such a way that it's, it's almost unrecognizable. For our audience who's not familiar, for the people who are outside of New York, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark, and and how you came to to get into the, the restaurant industry? Well, yeah. I mean, I actually started selling peanuts at Shea Stadium uh, when I was uh, 14 years old. And that kind of gave me the bite into the food service industry because it was food service then was run by a company called Harry M. Stevens, which was quite famous around these parts for all these different venues. And then You know, I floundered through school. I didn't do that well in school. And then I decided that I would take a job at Queens College where I was floundering around. And I ended up managing the Radskeller or the pub there. And the person who was director of food service gave me a ticket to what was then the New York Hotel and Restaurant Show. And believe it or not, I'm old enough to where I went to the Coliseum which is now became the Javits Center in a different location on Columbus Circle and realized that there were a number of schools, not very many at the time, because this was in the 70s, hotel and restaurant management. So I figured out a way to leave Queens College and go to what was then New York City Community College, which is now New York City Technical College, and studied hotel and restaurant management. And after I went there in the evening while I was working in the 
hotel industry and kitchens. I worked at the UN Plaza. I actually worked at Bloomingdale's for a short period of time in their La Trombe Bleu in their French restaurant and got to meet Michel Girard and his sous chef DDA and kind of realized that there was this whole world on cuisine and fine dining. And through school, I arranged a three-month internship in Germany, which was West Germany at the time in Frankfurt in a hotel, and ended up staying four years in Europe. And then came back, and I guess, you know, as they say, the rest is history. So when you came back, Mark, is what motivated you to really make this your life's work? Was it the love of the the cooking aspect, or was it the business and the hospitality side of it? What was the part that really drew you to this and made it your life's work? Well, I think that it was originally the cooking. Because, you know, only now today do 20-year-olds want to be moguls instead of chef de partes or instead of cooks. Then becoming a restaurateur was something that I learned when I saw other restaurateurs and said, hey, I could do that. I think that one of the most enlightening experiences was I spent about a year at a restaurant called Mortimer's. And Mortimer's was... It was kind of like the lunchroom for people who went to the Cirque. It was really society's lunch and dinner room. It was really their cafeteria, in a sense. And Glenn Birnbaum, who was the master of ceremony and proprietor, had actually was president of the custom shop for 30 years. And he had a clientele because he made all their shirts. And it was something that... I kind of didn't at the time because I wasn't into cooking hamburgers and making wedge salads as I am today, but I kind of got it. And then I ended up being introduced to Pino Luongo, my ex-partner, through a butcher, Mark Sarenson Sr. from DeBrager and Spittler after reading an article that he was like kind of the matchmaker between chef and restaurateur. So I went to go see him. And he was quite impressed with my European experience. That's cool, actually. You know, it's funny, DeBraga, who were our neighbors uh, in the meatpacking district, are also now our neighbors out here in Jersey City. They're maybe four or 500 yards from us. You're bringing me back to that time as well, because the restaurant scene in New York really has changed a lot. And I think the way that you were describing it got me thinking, because Nowadays, I think, and love to know your thoughts. Nowadays, you're right. I think a lot of people come to it from sort of the entrepreneur side first, whereas initially you would almost always see chefs really developing a name for themselves and then leveraging that experience to open their restaurants, sometimes by themselves or, or with other partners. And I think that probably led to higher, I don't know if it's would say higher quality food across the board, but perhaps a greater intimacy or, or passion for the actual experience of cooking and, and the restaurant as opposed to just from a business perspective? Yeah, you know, I think what really happened is, is, I mean, let's face it, if you think of France as a farming country, or you think of Italy as a farming country, I mean, America is a much bigger farming country. So, you know, as far as quality of ingredient, it starts at the farm level, mostly, even in protein and things like that. And, you know, but listen, people who are, have been importing European products, fine products for a long time. I mean, John F. Kennedy had a French chef in the White House in, in the 60s. So 
This was nothing new. You had Le Pavillon in New York in the 50s. What happened is, is in a sense, is the same thing that happened with the junk bond industry, where Wall Street got opened to the general public. That's kind of what happened to the food industry. It wasn't just for the elite, where you had Le Pavillon, you had the colony. This is even before Le Cirque. Right. Yeah. You had the Four Seasons, you know, with Paul Covey running the Four Seasons, the 21 Club with the Crindler family. Do you think we're at a point now or perhaps we've been at this point for a while where there's enough credibility within many pockets of the restaurant scene in the United States where there's no longer the need to have that European pedigree? And, and if so, when do you think that changed? If indeed you think it has changed? Well, I mean, if I was in my 20s, this would be the last industry I would go into today. Point blank. Because it's a shambles. It's actually a circle. We're actually reverting to going away from fine dining. And I'm not saying it's wrong. And I'm not saying that fine dining is a victim. Actually, fine dining is the reason why we're going away from it, because it became everyone did it. I noticed that living in New York, you go out for dinner every night, it's $100, $120. I mean, that's un, un, unsustainable for most of New Yorkers. You go to the diner today and they have ingredients, the same ingredients that they're trying to have in, in fine dining. The lines are blurred and with the whole tipping industry, which I'm not opposed to personally, it's changing as retails change. Do you think that's a function of real estate prices or, or what do you think is the prime driver of, of this dynamic? I don't think there is a prime driver. There never is. It's always a perfect storm. Real estate is not innocent. I think you can attest to this. You sold your building or you rent it to theory now. I don't know. You know, basically the real estate drove Florent and all of those people, including Pastis, actually, which just did reopen down there, out of the area. It's changing. This is the first time in the history of America where we have three generations of consumers, all with money. It's a good point. I never thought of that. It's really the first time. And how do you satisfy someone who's 68 years old, say 70 years old, they have a black American express card. You have someone in their forties and fifties who are in the prime of their career, which was normally the top generation 20 years ago. And then you have twenties, five and 30 year olds who are children of affluent parents and have credit cards. I basically, if you had to pick one factor that is the cause of this, it's called modern medicine. It's a fascinating take, and, and you're right. I remember Florent and growing up in New York City, as I did, there was a certain sad irony in that because I remember when the meatpacking area of New York began to change, Florent was one of the, the leaders of the movement to make it historically preserved and to sort of keep as much of the, the infrastructure there as possible. But ironically, what happened is it, I think it served as a catalyst for it 
being transformed into something other. I think from the perspective of my business and, and other industries, I think it did make sense eventually to go. So, for example, where we are in Jersey City now, we've got three acres, we've got parking. It was a very challenging environment to operate in. But you make a you know a very good point that the the level of consumerism and perhaps these other things that we try to do to preserve can sometimes create more problems than than we anticipate. You know, look, the worst thing that ever happened to that area was the High Line. You ever been up there? I have not. Okay. I was up there a couple of summers ago after the food show. It was so hot. It was wall to wall people. It's not a park. No, you're right. Unfortunately, look, COVID has taken a lot of people. It's really sad. A lot of people in my industry and I'm very lucky to have a new restaurant and be funded. I mean, I can't believe how lucky I am, especially at my age, but eventually this reset is going to really change New York for the better. It's going to make it affordable. It's going to make it accessible. And it's going to bring creative people back to the city. They were gone because, I mean, you have these apartments overlooking the high line and areas where nobody's home. They're all owned by, you know, people in the terrors. It's ridiculous. You know, it's funny you say this, Mark, because I could not agree with you more. It's something that I've, I may have even mentioned something similar on the podcast, but in many conversations, because I was born and raised in New York City. So I really lived through, I was born in 1970. So I saw the transition from the 70s to the 80s. I I lived in Chicago for a while when I came back. And I think you're 100% right. There came a point in New York's evolution where obviously we want to live in a city that that's not overrun with crime or other problems. But when you go back to, let's call it the late 80s, 90s, New York had a real level of charm and authenticity and, for lack of a better word, affordability that gave the city a dynamism, if you will, a, a vibe that was really lost for quite a while in the 2000s because it just became exactly what you said. You had people who would be in New York one or two months a year, And the whole thing really changed and it was not for the better. And I do think you're hundred percent right. I think this reset is going to probably make New York a, maybe a grittier city, but more affordable and, and much more interesting because you're not going to just see a bank on every corner or, or things that really are not unique to a, a city as great as New York. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I totally agree. And I don't mind grit. I like grit. I like it gritty. People don't understand that gritty doesn't mean it's not safe. Gritty doesn't mean it's dirty. It just means that it it has it has culture. It has some kind of feel to it, you know, that that's indicative of New York. I mean, right now, the landscape is just frightening. Once you start seeing drugstores like CVS and Walgreens and Rite Aid, they become convenience stores like 7-Elevens. And, and let's face it, there's nothing convenient about a convenience store except for the people that own it. hundred percent. I couldn't, I, again, I, I'm, I'm really in alignment with your thinking because I also agree, gritty does not mean bad. I mean, there was something really special about growing up in New York City in the 80s and you'd walk around the Lower East Side or the East Village or 
any place you want to say, there was there was something about it that was distinctly New York, and that got sucked out of the city. And I share your optimism. It's kind of a unique way of looking at it that you and I share, but I agree with you. I mean, so many great restaurants, for example, pre-pandemic, the biggest driving force of restaurants closing was the rent going up. And I'm hopeful, and I I believe it's the case, and I I hope it's going to be a lengthier window than it may be, but I think we now have an opportunity again where restaurants and those in the hospitality industry have a little bit of leverage and a little bit of negotiating power and perhaps are indeed desirable for landlords again, uh, which would be great. Yeah, it would, and it would be great if our governments actually put down some rules and regulations for landlords that were a little bit more stringent. I mean, the rules that they have for residential need to go into commercial. You can't just throw somebody out, which you can't in residential, but in commercial you can. And it's things like that. Look, the real estate industry is still a powerful lobbying industry and they're not going to go away quietly, but you know, there's an opportunity I think the next mayor, and certainly I would imagine the next governor, because I can't see how he'll live through this, will either take it on or it'll go back to the same thing. And if it goes back to the same thing, I think this country is going to be in a lot of trouble. You know, I agree with you. And from my background as a lawyer, even though I don't practice, there is a doctrine in the law which is utilized a lot in the commercial context, which is when uh, the government needs to take property to achieve a benefit for the overall community. It's it's memorialized in the takings clause of the Constitution. And sort of just expanding on what you were saying regarding commercial real estate, I, I don't think it's really something we want to continue where retail space and storefront space is left vacant for years and years and years. Uh, that does great damage to the community. So I think at the very least, a first step would be some of the ideas that are being bandied about, which would really create enormous disincentives for these buildings to not rent out that space. I agree. Or also at least turn them into something that's affordable rent. Look, I mean, you can't stop innovation. You can't stop things moving, really. I mean, I'm a firm believer in innovation and change and but it has to be done intellectually. It really does. Evolution is is natural, but it's not when what creates the problem is in a sense of corruption is when it's not done justly and fairly. I just was reading an article in the Times this morning, and it's about Amazon taking all of over these warehouses in New York, and which is good. Because, uh, you know, those neighborhoods, when they become empty, they become unsafe. It's not good. And the fact of the matter is we're going to need less stores. We are. Listen, I used to never shop online, and I shop online a bit now. Does that mean I won't go back to a store? I will. You know, I don't think it's completely one-sided. But the reality is, what are we going to do with those empty storefronts? If we turn them into affordable housing, why would you pay the same rent living on the first and second floor as you pay living on the 15th and 16th floor? There has to be, you know, you know, the way they build some of these new buildings 
is 80% luxury condo, 20% affordable housing. That figure may need to change to be higher, but we need to do that because otherwise the service industry that's left, you can't have your employees if you expect them in at six or seven in the morning to have an hour and a half commute. Absolutely. And, and I would say furthermore, people pay a substantial premium to live in New York City, both in terms of the current tax structure as well as in terms of the pricing. And what is there to make that reasonable if you don't get to really enjoy the charm and the, the eclectic aspects of a cityscape of which stores and restaurants and, and other facilities are an enormous part? And I agree with you. I think that with respect to retail, I think that there are certain parts of shopping that are just quite frankly much more pleasant to do online. And I think that will be something that continues. It's it's an answer to a problem. But there are certain things that cannot be done online or disrupted, such as the experience of dining out, among others, or going to a, a concert venue. So that's why I'm very bullish on our industry going forward, because I think it's an industry that people have an enormous love for. It's been really heavily constrained, particularly in our part of the country. But it's going to have to grow within the context of some thoughtful urban planning, as you were saying. I completely agree with you. And to be honest with you, we also have to be more self-policing in our industry. This is something I've always done. I listen, you know, I've had people work for me for 15, 20 years which is unheard of in my industry. And that's purely because you treat them correctly. And it's something that has not been done. And it's our previous generation, a lot of them Europeans that have created an environment and a a reputation in the restaurant industry that unfortunately is not what's going on today with a lot of these younger restaurateurs where they have much more fairer, uh, sustainable work environments than their predecessors. I agree with you. I think that's going to be a terrific change in the industry. And so many people that I've I've interviewed and spoken with reflect those exact values. So I, I think there's a lot of positive things coming out of this. And I really appreciated your insights there. I want to shift a little bit and talk about your your new restaurant, Marks Off Madison, because for people who are from New York City or have been in New York City and had been here during the right time, Campania and Fred's, these are truly iconic places. Now, the menu at Marks Off Madison really speaks to my love because I love that the, the bagels and smoked salmon and fish. It brings back so many great memories of going with my dad to Barney Greengrass or, or Russ and Daughters when you actually would sit in your car and eat because they didn't have the tables. I'm curious, what led you to create this concept? What was the inspiration to go in this direction with your new uh, offering? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's a fine dining restaurant at night. We have rabbit, we have suckling pig, black sea bass. You know, I mean, we had black truffles the other night. We had porcini mushrooms. I just have to say that that's that's so incredible. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mark, but yeah. now you're bringing me back to Chingali. I think yeah. that's absolutely so brilliant, the marrying of the two, but I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm just delighted no, no, uh, no. on that. You know, it's funny. I have a very, and I'm not sure why, um, for some reason, you know, either people think I'm an icon from being doing this so long or they just don't recognize me. 
You know, like I've never had a James Beard. Well, I actually have it in a book, a nomination. I think that it's a very incestuous, jealous industry run by a group of chefs who ran and the city meals on wheels and the James Beard, the old James Beard, not the new James Beard. Thank goodness. And I don't care anymore. I don't care. I've had one star in the Times. I've had two stars in the Times. I've had three stars in the Times. Coco got three stars the first time we opened in 92. And I don't care anymore. I don't care what these people think. But I can tell you one thing, that when it's all said and done, there's the 21 Club, the Four Seasons, Le Cirque. Fred's will be in that breath. Absolutely. I would go to an airport and it would somehow one of my travel agents at one time put my name of my restaurant on there and I would get upgraded. Oh my God, Fred's. I was there when I was in New York. It was unbelievable. These people, Springsteen. And it's an industry full of jealousy. And that's the problem. Chefs are jealous of each other instead of being supportive of each other. And the other thing that's destroying the food industry is chopped top chef beat Bobby Flay. All of this, although I love Bobby, don't get me wrong. He is a sweet guy. And Hell's Kitchen. That's not the way a kitchen works. No, you're absolutely I mean, right. No, I mean, are you telling me that Colin Powell would be on a show called Top General? <laughs> Please. It's an insult. Well, you know, you make a, you make a great point again. It's one of the reasons that I did this podcast because I think that there's a lot of people who have a perception of the industry for good or for bad that was not really in alignment with the realities of it because the reality of this industry is it's an amazing industry and it's fascinating and complicated, but I think you're you're absolutely right with the oversimplification of how it's portrayed in in many of these shows. Well, they're all ju- all the judges don't have restaurants anymore. You're absolutely right. But, but what I love about what you're saying also, and it really speaks to the confidence and it also speaks to the credentials that you've earned. And I also think it's the way things are going to continue to go going forward, which is you've created with Marks Off Madison, from my vantage point as a consumer, the absolute perfect restaurant because you're offering at the highest level different types of cuisine that people would want at different moments in the day or different moments in the week. And I love the fact that you're completely ignoring any preconceived notions or limitations because those don't need to exist amongst consumers. You know what I'm saying? From the perspective of the consumer, especially someone who's had the opportunity to enjoy your cuisine on within the Italian genre, it's like, this is heaven. It's, it's the perfect opportunity to have much greater engagement with your consumers. And I, I commend you for it because it only happened due to your ability to just say, I'm not going to have any interest whatsoever in conventional thinking on this. Well, I mean, Fred's helped me do that because it became the cafeteria for the New York Upper East Side Society. Well, what's today modern New York society? Fifth Avenue, Madison Park Avenue, Central Park West, Central Park South. And it became this destination of tourists. And and look, it was a perfect storm. It couldn't have happened without Barney's. There's no doubt about it. But how come it's the only it was the only world-class iconic restaurant 
in a store. So it had to be some of it me as well. And I took it and ran with it. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're just pretend, you know, it's interesting. Paul Bocuse is an example for the first 30 some odd years was in his restaurant all of the time. He had three stars every time. And then look, I understand you're tired. You have younger people. You let them do it. And, you know, he went around the world a bit and he lost the star. So had two stars, but he lost the star. And I think the French handled that really well. And I think, I think he did. I mean, if you, if you go there today, cause I actually follow them on Instagram, the food is it's on cuisine in its finest hour, but it's right now it's the chef is a celebrity. What about the chef as a cook? What happened to that? Absolutely. I think you're hundred percent right. I, I don't want to name any names cause I don't want to be mean, but I can think off the top of my head, a lot of celebrity chefs, quote unquote, who are not in the game anymore. And it's, it's almost a repetition of what you said, Mark, which is a lot of these judges no longer have their own restaurant. In my mind, the great chefs and the ones that are truly remembered are the ones who are remembered for what their output was, not necessarily Although, you know, listen, as, as anything in life, there's marketing, there's charm, there's whatever you want to call it. But I think ultimately the real legends and the real legendary restaurants stand the test of time because of the cuisine, because of the ambiance, because of the experience eating there. Not the chef, and tell me if you disagree with this, thrusting his or her ego at the forefront of the experience. I couldn't have said it better and I couldn't agree more. Look, I was very lucky. I grew up in a very liberal middle-class household. I grew up in a city housing project in Queens, which at the time was a middle-class housing project. It is not today, but it was then. And somehow, much to my parents' dismay, you know, here's this kid going into the city and buying smoked salmon instead of Nova, right? You know, when Petrosian first opened and stuff like that. And so, I, you know, I understand both aspects of it i mainly i got a lot of that from my parents and it's just the customer signs your paycheck don't look at my signature if the customer doesn't pay me my signature doesn't get me on the subway without a metro card okay and i think that that's something that everybody wants to be gordon ramsay i don't know why i mean guy looks like a dentist <laughs> i don't right. understand I, I never understood why are you wearing the short sleeve shirt? Except the fact you never go near a stove, I guess. You're so right. I mean, it's, it's funny. I think Gordon Ramsay and I, I, I've, we've never had uh, him as a customer. I don't know him, but I think with him, just from living life and, and seeing on television, I think he's built this personal brand based upon his personality. I, I can tell you this, you know, I've never heard anybody come to me and I, I've been in this business for quite a while and saying that you have to try the food at this place. Now, maybe that's because his better restaurants are over in Europe. I don't know. But I think it's more of a personality thing. Whereas I think, as you were sort of saying with, with the restaurants that you'd mentioned, that's, that's well, something different. He goes different. to food jungles is where he goes. I mean, he opens a restaurant in Reno, Nevada. Yeah, I'm sure that's pretty hot in Reno, Nevada. You know, you don't need to go to get divorced there anymore. So I don't know why you'd go to Reno, Nevada. You know, I don't know why anybody would go to Las Vegas, Nevada, personally. It's a great question now with all of the ability to to utilize DraftKings and 
FanDuel. I mean, unless you want to play table games, it makes a great point. I, th- I think that's another thing that could very much be, how shall we put it, changed uh, in the coming years, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, uh, you know, um, somebody just bought the Venetian, believe it or not, one of the big capital companies. I just read that today in the Times. Um, you know, look, Las Vegas is going to be a destination because it's, you have hotels, it's, you know, it's the desert. I mean, the reason why they originally found Las Vegas is still the reason why Las Vegas is Las Vegas. And believe me, gambling is not going to go away, but it's all about the shows. I think some of that may, for performers, if you could play 60 nights a year and make a living in Las Vegas, why do you want to tour around the country? I think that will work in some respects, but there'll be a shrinking. I think some of it will. Look at what happened to Atlantic City. I mean, that was never able to take off the ground like it was in in the 50s or 60s or 40s before big air travel. And, you know, you have these Indian casinos, the ones, you know, up in Connecticut. Um, I forget the name of them because I never go to them. Mohegan Sun and I live in um, New York City. I can go to Ma- I'd rather, much rather go to Madison Square Garden. What do I need to go up to Mohegan Sun to see YouTube? I can go see him at Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center. You know, I, the other thing I don't really, I'm not sure I believe in so much are these food courts. I'm with you there. Not not only the food courts, but I once my wife was pregnant with our third child, we moved to the suburbs. So I live now right out right right off the uh, George Washington Bridge in New Jersey. But I was born and raised in New York. And for the life of me, I can't understand the appeal of not just the food courts, but a lot of these indoor malls. Because we've got phenomenal malls in New Jersey. But only in New York City can you walk for miles and be captivated potentially by what you see. So I agree with you. I mean, food courts are nothing new. They have them in every mall out here. Perhaps the take on it is the type of cuisine that's offered or something. But I'm with you. I I don't fully get it. But I'm talking about these new ones, like in Brooklyn or that Penske one that was in the garden or it was not in the garden. It was in Penn Plaza. I mean, it's just, there's nothing hospitable about it. And, and it doesn't seem to be working because they constantly keep changing venues, different restaurants and the ones who leave are all complaining. And it's like what happened in industry city. It's just abuse the restaurant tour. That's what it is. Make it sound, you know, I mean, they come to you and they go, yo, you know, we love you. You're great. This is unbelievable. We have the crown jewels of London. I remember when they first redid Grand Central and they were real, and Campani was at the time a really hot restaurant. And I was in my 40s. So I was like, really, you know, I was in vogue at the time. Now I'm just, now they call me OG, which my <laughs> kids had to tell me what it meant. Now that I, I know what it means now. But because I'm also dyslexic, so it, sometimes it doesn't click in, right? So I remember the guy saying to me, two million people a, a day go through Grand Central. You know, how could you, what do I need to do to sell you? Guarantee me that they'll all come into my space. I said, dude, I grew up in New York. Every time I'm in Grand Central, I move so fast. The only thing I want to do when I get into, and this is long, I'm, this has nothing to do with COVID. Every time I want to get it, I get into Grand Central, I want to get out of Grand Central. I get in that train, I want it to move. I don't want to, I don't want to go into Grand Central, spend 20 minutes, 
and get, you know, I'm not going to Montreal. I'm going to visit a friend in Dobbs Ferry or something. 100%. And and it, and it's the same thing. It's these, you know, in Brooklyn you have these ones in I forget, you know. It's like Smorgasbord. I mean, who wants to go? I mean, it's like I don't know. Maybe it's my maybe I'm old. I don't know. You know what's interesting? You know what I love Greenpoint, Brooklyn. It's like it's very, you know, the scale there's a lot of little restaurants. There's little stores. They actually have a bookstore in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. That's unbelievable. They have a store called Alter, where my kids, or my kids, they're adults now. They love it. Even I want to buy clothes there. It's so cool. And because you can't, you know, yeah, maybe you could find them in Bloomingdale's. I don't know. You know, but who cares? I don't want to go to Bloomingdale's. I want to go to Alter. I want to go to these young stores that these people think and they're proud of what they sell. They're real merchants. That's what Barney Pressman was. He was a merchant. And Fred, his son. That's what we're missing in this country. I'll never forget. I'm at this. I'm at a, you know, this is when I, Pino and I got the award, you know, nomination for James Beard. So we're standing there watching a the red carpet. In comes the guy from Olives. What's his name? Todd English. And he's with this big investor guy. And he goes, Todd and I are doing a bunch of concepts. And I look at Pino. I said, you know, that's the problem. We only, we do restaurants. <laughs> You're right, Mark. Mark, this has been such a joy, but I, I have to ask you one question. I'm in agreement with you. I think that we're at the beginning of what can be a really positive and beneficial reset transformation. What advice would you give to someone who's looking now to maybe start their own restaurant or bar or something in the hospitality space in anticipation of the changes you're, you're seeing, what would you say would be a fundamental lesson or idea that you would want them to have as they began that journey? Number one, the answer is yes, even when it's no. That's the number one. In fact, I said that to Mickey Drexel one night from The Gap and J. Crew fame and now Alex Mill fame. And he goes, he looks at me, he goes, what do you mean by that? I said, nobody wants to hear the word no. Okay. I said to him, in all due respect, Mr. Drexel, especially you, you don't want to hear no. So what you do is you say yes, but you tell him, listen, I don't have broccoli rob, but I can take broccoli, sir. And I can make, turn it around, make it into a positive. Open up a business for your customers, not for yourself. That's the most important. And it's also be customer obsessed, not competition obsessed. It's very important. And also understand a sense of urgency in this industry. That when somebody, when there's a problem, buy it back. Don't ignore it. Such great advice. and. Um... Very powerful, and I completely agree with you, and I can honestly say that I strive to live within those doctrines here in our company as well, but very powerful. Mark, this has been an absolute joy. I really have enjoyed reconnecting with you, and I've really enjoyed Same speaking here. with you. And I just want to say to everybody, if, you, if you're from New York, obviously you know all about it, but if you are not from New York, you must go to Mark's off Madison and experience Mark Straussman. It's it's really something to do. So if you want to follow Mark, you can go to his website, www.markstraussman.com or 
marksoffmadison.com. On Instagram, it's Chef Mark Straussman or at Marks Off Madison. Mark, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really enjoyed this. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. All right, have a great day. You too. That was a really special conversation with Mark, who is undoubtedly a legend in the New York City dining scene. And I particularly enjoyed his comments about the future of of New York, and I especially enjoyed his his insights as to what is required to open and build and grow a restaurant successfully. And it boils down to putting the customer first, or as Mark so elegantly put it, build the business for your customer, not for yourself. So that was uh, very, very special and very, very true. If you enjoy the podcast, as I hope you do, it would mean a lot if you would subscribe or even better, write a review. If you know someone who would enjoy this content, I would really appreciate it if you would recommend it to them. I really love this community that we've built, and I always enjoy getting emails or direct messages from you, so please keep them coming. You can email me at steven at wilcofoods.com or DM me at wilcofoods on Instagram. And most importantly, everybody, have an awesome, awesome day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Wolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>